electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, stepping away from the Magnificent Seven of Top Strategists has a bold call on where you should go next. A rough diamond. J.P. Morgan CEO delivering a stunning take on Joe Biden, Donald Trump, and the economy. EV's winter of discontent. A deep freeze across America delivering a cold shock for some owners. A White House Houthis about face. The U.S. reclassifying the group as a terror organization. Will that fuel an escalation in Red Sea attacks? Plus... Meta's former CEO, Sheryl Sandberg, making a surprise announcement left some of the breaking developments. And Prime to dominate local sports, Amazon, with a huge win in its push to conquer streaming. All that and more over the hour. Spelly up or buckle up because last call is up right now. Welcome, everybody, and as always, good evening here. Good afternoon out west. I am Brian Sullivan. Thanks for joining us. We've got all that and more coming up in our hour. But first up on Last Call, China's economic meltdown and its potential impact on America and your money. China's economy is in trouble. It faces a real estate meltdown, high levels of debt, and even a shrinking population. China released data showing the country's economic growth rate finished at one of the lowest levels in decades. In fact, going all the way back to 1976, which means if they're reporting one number, it's probably even worse than that number. And investors are bailing on the once hot market. The domestic China and Hong Kong stock markets have fallen over the past year, while other markets in the region like Japan, South Korea and Vietnam have seen their markets go up. Shanghai? down 12%, Hang Seng down almost 30% in a year. To add insult to injury, China's population fell for a second year in a row last year. There are around 9 million newborns. That's half a million fewer than the previous year and the lowest number since the founding of the People's Republic back in 1949. Now, through this, China's putting a brave face on at the World Economic Forum in Davos. The country's premier was there to try to assure world leaders and investors. He insists that China has huge potential and remains an important engine of global growth. Now, all this brings up an important question. Will China's troubles eventually hurt the American economy and maybe our markets? And what happens with Taiwan? Let's talk about it with somebody who knows a thing or two about China. Famed hedge fund manager Kyle Bass, founder and chief investment officer of Heyman Capital Management, on set with us here in the great state of New Jersey. Kyle, good to see you. Good to see you, Brian. How bad is the Chinese economic situation right now? You know, you mentioned that um, they were they experience, uh, experiencing a few crises, and uh, they even had a decline in exports for the first time in a long time last year, about 3.5% decline. They've got a real estate crisis, a banking crisis, a local government debt crisis that exceeds $13 trillion. And they've got a youth unemployment crisis, which they stopped reporting as soon as the numbers got bad. And here we are seeing their premier at Davos saying they grew GDP at 5.3 percent. 
when every single you indicator we oh come in, come on. And no one believes that. But he, he says it with a straight face. And I think when you if they're if they're just cheating a little on the number, they can get away with it. If they say it was up five when it was probably down two and a half, then no one believes him. Mm-hmm. And I every and no one yeah, on the You Wall say Street up five, it's up believes. four and a half, who cares, right? Yeah, right. Right. They're probably not the only country fudging some of the numbers. All right. Uh, that said, when you look at all those things, here's what I view as a problem. You tipped me off for this a few months ago. China has been increasingly stingy or outright blocking the release of certain critical pieces of data through some of these Bloomberg terminal-like clones that they have in China. Are they yeah. not? Yeah. They it, Basically, last March of 2023, they severed the data flow. They geo-blocked it from the China mainland of all macro-level and micro-level data. So now what we knew that the data had low fidelity in the first place, but now there just isn't any. We just have to take their word for it. System's called wind. Yeah, well, there, there were four or, five, a couple, right? four or five systems. Wind was the one that, that we used and the, the one that, you know, Harvard and Yale and the rest of the universities use. All of those lines have been cut. So all the data that we get now has to come from some mainland analyst mainland China analyst that gets approved by the Chinese Communist Party before it's released. So their control, not only on the Standing Committee of the Politburo, not only on the military, but their control on the data market has been severely uh, restricted uh, to simple central control. And we bring that up on a business and money focused network and show like this one, because if you're an investor that's either invested in or looking to invest in China, we know the data is not always believable to your point. Now I wonder if you can even get enough data to make some kind of informed investment decision. Yeah, the, the truth is you can't. And, and Chinese companies themselves don't submit themselves to U.S., SEC, PCAOB covered audits. At the beginning of the show, you mentioned that um, both China's main indices and the Hong Kong indices were down last year. It's better to look at these even on a 15-year basis. In 15 years, China's GDP, reported GDP, is up over 500%. But if you invested in the Chinese stock market 15 years ago, you've lost a third of your money. Yeah. It's, it's not just that it was off for a year, off for two years. Investing in communism never pays. And when U.S. investors figure that out, it's going to be too late. And that's, I think, this is a critical point you're making, okay? And the Hang Seng, which is really their New York stock exchange, if you will. That's the sort of the more old line companies that have been there a long time. They were much more open to Western investors forever, still are to a point. It's back to, I think, 2009 levels. Despite what you say about GDP growth, and I'm a believer in why, one of the reasons I do this for a job is that markets tell the story. The data the does data. not lie. Exactly. This, the market is flat, but the data says they're up. Exactly. Well, let's go to the Hang Seng. Since China implemented the national security law in Hong Kong, when they, when they removed Hong Kong's autonomy and implemented the, the iron fist of communism into Hong Kong, ruined it as a Asian financial center, that was, call it January 2020, just pre-COVID. Uh, the Hang Seng's down four years in a row and now five years. It's already down 10.5% in 17 days mm-hmm. this year. That's so over five years percent in 17 days. It's down 50% in five years, five zero. So when you see communism imposed on a former uh, 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 thriving center of finance, once it gets imposed, you lose. 
You lose. The Western investor loses everything. And, and a lot of our viewers or listeners may be like, well, I don't care. I, you know, they want China's an economic growth engine. It may come back to growth. But here's one of the reasons, folks, that we're bringing it up, is that if you may invest in an international ETF or an international fund and have exposure to China and not even know it, you always got to know what you own. If you have an international ETF, look at the holdings. If you got international mutual funds, look at the holdings. And if you're thinking about investing in the Hang Seng because it's down 50% in a couple of years, as Kyle mentioned, be careful with the data. That's the point. You, you can't trust the information. It's not even the data, Brian. It's the data, but it's also what are you investing in? And, and what are your returns well, going to be? There are some be? great companies there, I'm sure. I mean, look, you, you can invest in a great... Second biggest economy in the world. Okay. All Exporter, right. Who's manufact- grown? manufacturer to the world. It's grown 500%, and you've gotten a beatdown in your portfolio. What I'm saying is the, the, they, they all work at the pleasure of Xi Jinping and the Communist Party. You, the investor, you, the Westerner, you, the person that's supposed to receive some sort of reward for the massive risks you're taking, and you're getting negative returns, and not just for a year, for four years, for five years, for 15 years. However you look at it, you are getting murdered in your stock market and stock I, I asked a question in 30 seconds. It could have taken five seconds. That's just, sometimes I do that. Mm. Okay, you know, mm. you've known me for a long time. Do you ever get to a point where the market may look cheap enough for even Kyle Bass to say, Maybe I'll look at that. That's a, great, that's a great question. In 2017, we were in the state of Texas. We were debating uh, whether we should have an allocation to Russia or not. And, of course, you probably know where I came out on this. I said, well, Putin took Georgia in 2008. He took Crimea in 2014. We know who he is. And on the other side of the table were a group of young people saying, we have to invest in Russia. It's super cheap. You know, Spurbank trades at four times earnings and has an ROE of 12% or whatever the number was, and Gazprom and this and that, and Putin's not going to make any more moves in this world that, that would cost him economically. So how can we not invest in Russia? Because it's so damn cheap. Those are, that's what I'm hearing in China right now. And I'll just tell you, it ended poorly for us in Russia. We lost everything. We marked it down to zero. Well, a lot of people, the market stopped trading. First off, when, when, when he invaded Ukraine with his insane war, okay. it went to zero. You so, couldn't so, access the money. So what's the risk of Xi Jinping following through on all of his speeches talk, since 2017? Let's talk Taiwan, okay, because I think that's where you're going. They had elections, okay, ticked off Beijing. What ticked off Beijing maybe even more was that some countries like the Philippines and others congratulated Taiwan on their successful election. We know that China is angry. We know that China is wounded. And to me, sort of, that makes them potentially even more dangerous now. Yeah. You know, when Wag you- Wag the dog. When you got a domestic issue, what do you do? You create an international issue to rally the troops right. inside the country. To, to create a sense of nationalism and refocus people. That China's facing the worst economic decline it's, it's seen in the last 40 years. And yet, here we are talking about how, well, Xi Jinping's upset, but he hasn't done anything post-election. I think post-election, first of all, when you think about this election, the people of Taiwan are ethnically Chinese. Yeah. So this election was Taiwan saying, we just saw how the movie ended in Hong Kong, and we don't, we don't want to participate in that movie. We don't want your iron fist ruling Taiwan. Taiwan has self-ruled since 1949. Xi Jinping, in his speeches since 2017, it says, we're going to take you, whether it's peacefully or and not. And China, I, I've been to China, uh, Hong Kong a few times. I was there covering the, the peace protests in 2019. 
And having been there in years past, it was sad because China lied. They lied. They said there was going to be one country, two systems. Mm. It's one country, one system. 100%. They just steamrolled Hong Kong. Yep. Which is tough to see because there's a lot of great people there. So what if they... Listen, China needs to have a standing in the world. I mean, they, they don't, if they go after Taiwan, they're going to become a, a, a Russia-like pariah, are they not? I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I hear, I'm in enough meetings on Wall Street and in corporate America where I, where I hear constantly, well, we're too economically intertwined. They, they won't do it. Or, and or, the, why should the U.S. get involved? Well, you know, China's grand plan is global primacy at, at any cost. And you read the, the book, Unrestricted Warfare, written by two Chinese generals and admirals, and uh, it, they explain to you they want to secure the first island chain, which includes Taiwan, and then they want to secure the second island chain and the third, and their goal is not only Pacific primacy, but global primacy. And so uh, Taiwan isn't the prize. Yeah. Taiwan is a stepping stone to forcing all of Southeast Asia to, to bow to Chinese power. And well, they also need oil. Uh, I hate to bring it back to that, but they, they, and there's a lot of oil in the South China Sea, and they need to yeah. start actually drilling for their own oil rather than being just a pure, nearly pure oil buyer. And, you know, I, you don't want to create sort of over fear about this type of situation, which may end up, I mean, listen, things can happen. Xi Jinping is not a young man either. Maybe the people get tired of it and they want to affect change. And I want to be clear, we're talking about Chinese leadership, not the Chinese people who have to live under this. That's correct. Right, the we're Communist talking- Party in China is a couple of percent which control everything, all the money, all the power, all the wealth. Correct. The, the Communist Party card-carrying members about 90 million out of about 1.35 billion. Uh, but the leadership, just the standing committee, the Politburo, they run everything, right? And so the, the issue here is Xi Jinping has purged anyone that was part of the Hu Jintao sympathizers or factions mm-hmm. or the Jiang Zemin or any of those people. They... Everyone there now has been homogenized and they all owe their lives to Xi Jinping. He is Mao incarnate of 2023-24. And that's the problem, right? When you get madmen, you get autocrats, you get totalitarian leaders that have all of that power. You get it in Putin, you get it in Xi, you get it. You look back through history and those people have caused the world large problems in the past, those kinds of people. And we all don't want to we all want to believe that war is over and that world wars will never happen again. I sure hope that's the case. Let's hope. But here we have we have Hamas, Israel. We have uh, Putin. We have Russia, Ukraine. And those are just I think they're wars, but they're regional conflicts. They're not global wars. If and when China decides to move on Taiwan, I think it's going to become a much larger problem. Well, I, I I say this. With affection, I hope that that never. I hope you're wrong. I hope never wrong. Yeah, we all want to be wrong. Yeah, because that's just bad for the Chinese people. Perhaps most of all, you know, yes. most of whom, many of whom, live in just abject poverty. Kyle Bass, good to see you. Great to be here. Thank you. All right, maybe the China impact is already starting to be felt here. Who knows? Stocks fell again today. All the major indexes down. Inside the S&P 500, your stud and dud, the big winner of the day. Building equipment provider Johnson Controls up three and a half percent. The big loser. Look at this. Lithium producer Albemarle down 4%. They're cutting staff. They're pausing expansion. Folks, remember, lithium expected to be the, quote, gasoline of any electrification revolution. Albemarle was a $325 stock just over a year ago. It's now at 120 a share. All right, up next. Top strategist says it may be time to step away from the Magnificent Seven, and we'll talk about history and why. Plus, 
The CEOs of Boeing and Spirit Air are speaking out as the FAA widens its probe into the 737 MAX 9. That? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. Extra, give it to you. How about that? That's a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Extra, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Give up. Order now at Acura.com. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Let's get to tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the headlines and stories that you and Wall Street will be talking about tomorrow morning. First up, former Meta COO Sheryl Sandberg says she is leaving Meta's board of directors. In a statement on, where else, Facebook, Sandberg writes, quote, going forward, I will serve as an advisor to the company and I will always be there to help the Meta teams. Meantime, shares of Discover Financial are down. It's the owner of the Discover card. They disappointed on earnings. But the bigger headline may be that Discover is setting aside an extra $1 billion to protect against future debt losses. In other words, people may be not paying back on their credit card. It's been a rough run for Chicago-based Discover lately, which has had leadership shakeups and questions about internal accounting. And finally, your daily Boeing update. CEO David Calhoun visiting Spirit Aerosystems in Wichita, Kansas today. Spirit makes the part of the fuselage on the 737 MAX that had the blowout on the Alaska Airlines flight. In a town hall attended by more than 200 Spirit employees, Calhoun said, quote, We're going to get better, not because the two of us are talking, but because the engineers at Boeing, the mechanics at Boeing, the inspectors at Boeing, and the engineers at Spirit, the mechanics at Spirit, and the inspectors at Spirit, they're going to speak the same language on this in every way, shape, or form. We're going to learn from it, and then we're going to apply it to literally everything we do together. End quote. Time, of course, will tell. All right, next up, let's go back in time to this moment from January of 2000. We're pleased to have all of you here with us today as we announce the merger to create the first global media and communications company of the internet century, AOL Time Warner. Very young Steve Case. All right, the AOL Time Warner merger is still the biggest deal in American history. But we know also what happened next. By the time the deal closed a year later, both AOL stock, one of the best performers, of course, in the late 90s, and the NASDAQ were down 35%. And for the so-called Magnificent Seven of that time, a choppy performance over the last two decades, to say the least. Thanks to our friend and market expert Paul Hickey at Bespoke Investment Group, back then we know the seven most valuable stocks were Cisco Systems, GE, IBM, Intel, Pfizer, Walmart, and Microsoft. And here is something, dare we say, random but interesting. Of those seven companies that were the biggest back then, in the year 2000, only one, Microsoft, has outperformed the S&P 500 over the last 24 years. And three of them are actually lower. Hickey says this is a bit of a history that's maybe a good lesson and maybe a warning too. 
about the biggest tech stocks today. Enough about quoting Paul Hickey. Let's bring in Paul Hickey. He can ask himself a question. Paul, we, we love your historical stuff. Are you saying, that, you know, on CNBC Live right now that NVIDIA is AOL Time Warner? You're not saying that. So what I'm saying is the Magnificent Seven of today will probably, most likely, maybe one or two will be there 10 years, 15 years from now. But the odds are that they're not going to be there uh, when we look back 10, 15 years from now. And the thing is, you look at that, that merger of AOL Time Warner. It made the front page of the New York Times the following day, four columns above the fold. That never happens with a business story in the New York Times. But everyone was heralding it as the greatest thing since sliced bread. Today, we have the magnificent seven stocks. Everybody loves them. They're universally loved. 80% of all sell-side recommendations for those stocks are buys. If you take the other 493 stocks in the S&P 500, only 54% of recommendations are buys. So it's not a secret that these, these stocks, they've revolutionized their industries, but it's no yeah. secret everybody knows about them. I, I they trade for a median of 34 times earnings. Rest of the market, 17 times earnings. With, with the help of our great team here, I, I, I track all the top picks of every Wall Street research firm. Probably miss one or two here and there. But Michael Bloom, thank you here at CNBC and others have helped me compile this list. So I know this. Last year, Paul, Amazon was the one of it was on 10 different Wall Street firms top picks for the year list. By the way, they nailed it. Stock soared. I think it was up 70 percent this year. Amazon is on 14 top picks list four more than last year. I think that kind of goes to your point. Everybody piles in until they don't. Yeah, as they go up, they become more popular. And so I, I, nothing against these companies. Uh, you know, they, they've done great and they could continue to do great in the short term or in the next few in the next year or two. But longer term, the market is always shifting. Leadership is always shifting. And if you want to be an investor that's going to outperform the market, you have to look beyond the front page of the paper. OK, so you have to look underneath this, this, the 25 stocks that perform the best back in two, in 2000 mm -hmm. in January since January 2000 Apple's the only one that's a mega cap stock now these most of these names today a lot of investors probably have never heard of them back then no one heard of them so you you just have to do your own research and really focus on things below on the back pages of the paper in order to outperform for the long term yeah maybe you want to find the next Nvidia or the next Apple or whatever it may be not the current one. Great history lesson. History maybe not always repeats itself, but it often rhymes. Paul Hickey, thank you. Thank you. All right, still ahead of Jamie Dimon's stunner. His comments about Joe Biden, Trump, and the economy that have everyone buzzing. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric CDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.
That's right, a bonus tomorrow's news tonight for you. The White House announcing that President Biden will deliver an address on the economy at 2.15 tomorrow Eastern time. Power lunch producers take note. The remarks coming as the president plans to campaign in Raleigh, North Carolina. Speaking of the economy's role in the 2024 election, it's been a hot topic at the World Economic Forum in Davos. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon speaking to CNBC about the impact on the growing support for former President Trump. When people say MAGA, they're actually looking at people voting for Trump and they think they're voting and they're basically scapegoating them that you are like him. Uh, and but I don't think they're voting for Trump because of his family values. Now, if you look, just take a step back, be honest. He was kind of right about NATO, kind of right about immigration. Mm-hmm. He grew the economy quite well. China, Trade, China ta- virus. Tax reform worked. Yeah. He was right about some of China. I don't th- I don't like no, what he did. No, I said China virus. Yeah, I understand. When he, when yeah. he may have been right. He, he, and I don't like how he said things about I Mexico. I don't like. But he wasn't wrong about some of these critical issues. And that's why they're voting for him. And, and I think people should be a little more respectful of our fellow citizens. Yeah. According to the latest polling from Morning Consult, former president holds a slight edge over President Biden nationwide, about 2%, but that's a margin of error, and we know the polls have been lousy in the past. President Biden has had strong economic momentum during his term so far. The unemployment rate has declined. Inflation appears to be cooling off, following, of course, a major spike earlier on. And according to a recent Axios survey, 63% of Americans say their personal financial situation is good including 19% who say things are very good. So why are so many other Americans so sour on the economy overall? Are they maybe pining for a return to the pre-pandemic economy, which, by the way, folks, is never going to happen? Joining us now is former North Dakota Senator and University of Chicago Institute of Politics Director Heidi Heidkamp and founder and CEO CEO of Built Rewards, anchor Jane. Senator Heidkamp, um, you heard Jamie Dimon's comments. You're from North Dakota. Okay, I guarantee you, and I think this is what he was speaking to. I guarantee you, you know people that voted for the former president that are not extreme right-wing crazies, correct? And I think that's what he was going at. And I do wonder, Senator, if calling half the country or half of voters, you know, extremists is a good political strategy. Well, I certainly don't think so. I would never have been successful in North Dakota if that were my strategy, uh, because 22 percent of the people who voted for me voted for Mitt Romney. And so, you know, the, the, the bigger thing here, Brian, is that if we're going to bring this country together, we can't keep pointing at each other and saying, you're the other and I don't like you. And in politics, the worst thing that you can do is fill your boat with a bunch of people who are now mad at you and you have no opportunity to persuade them. Now, I don't agree with Jamie on a couple of things that he said that Trump, he thought Trump was right on, but I do think Jamie was right when he said, don't take on enemies, don't take these these uh, kind of the shortcuts and call your fellow citizens something that achieves kind of a deplorable category if you want to win the hearts and minds and actually unite the country. Yeah, I just wonder, Ankur, if it's uh, if it's a political, if it's potentially, you know, set up for a political backfiring, because a lot of people are like, I, I, yeah, I may have voted for the former guy, but I I love this country. I love the, you know, law and order and a secure border. And I'm not a I'm not a right wing crazy and it just ticks them off. Look, you can't constantly have this attitude that the other half of the country are just bigots and wrong. I mean, it just doesn't work. And I think if you ask yourself why 
do so many people in this country still show that they want to vote for Trump? And we saw it in Iowa, even though many of those folks probably would tell you they don't love the person giving the message, right? There's something deeper there. And I think, by the way, you look at it, we talk about inflation slowing. But for most Americans, you're still paying record high rents. You have record high interest rates on your credit cards. You have higher grocery costs, higher food costs. Like, these are real issues facing people. And by the way, even here in New York, I mean, this migrant crisis has gotten a little out of control, right? And they're sitting here thinking, gosh, maybe the former president was right about some of these border issues. And I'm not a crazy person. Yeah, right? well, I'll so tell you, Anker, I don't think you're a crazy person either, but let me follow up with you. It doesn't go for the other side to do it to the other side as well. And let's just say the 2020 election came out differently, okay? And the former guy is, was still the current guy. He still would have dealt with a lot of this inflation that's coming off the pandemic just like Harry Truman did coming off of World War II. Harry Truman was wildly unpopular because people were angry about the high cost of living because he inherited an economy that was coming off a of war. Whoever Sorry. was in the White House, I wonder if there's anybody who could be in the White House, anybody in the world right now that wouldn't have had to deal with a lot of those inflationary issues. Brian, that's politics, right? Like that is just the reality of taking on the, the, at this time. And part of that is telling your story, right? And so if President Biden can't explain how things are actually better, yeah. right? And acknowledging that, yes, things are still hard. I mean, to tell you what, going out there and saying, look at me, the economy is doing so well and everyone is doing great and unemployment is so low. It, you know, what, how does that make you feel when you go home if you're still having issues making the bills at the end of the month, right? And so yeah. acknowledging that issue is probably the first step, not just saying, hey, you're crazy because you want to vote for the, you know, the other side. Yeah, well, uh, Senator Biden, the term Bidenomics, I think, is gone. I, I don't think it, it, it the, the half-life of that term wasn't, wasn't too I, good. I, but how one. If, if most people in the country think you're not doing a good job on the economy, to label the economy that they're not thinking you did a good job on with your name is probably not good political persuasion. But I want to point out something. And a lot of people are talking about Iowa. Well, I was in Iowa. You know, they were predicting 200,000 votes. They got less than 100,000. And the sitting Republican president, you know, in, in essence, the not sitting, but the former Republican president, barely got 50% of those votes in a conservative state. Mm -hmm. That says to me that there's opportunity for the Democrats to persuade Republicans, but you aren't going to persuade them by pointing your finger at them and saying you're wrecking America. You've got to say, come listen to what I've got to say. And I think that's where labeling everyone a MAGA Republican, you know, demonizing people who have voted for Trump in the past yeah. is not a successful political strategy. Well, I think Iowa, right. I, I know a lot of the political news channels would disagree. I don't think Iowa told us anything. The weather was garbage. The, to your point, the voter turnout wasn't good. I think we're going to learn going forward. But, Senator, just a little bit off topic, but I got to ask you because I tweet a lot about it, and I mean it, so I'll say it here, too. H how does President Biden sell his message when he doesn't speak to the media? I think his last live interview was in July, I believe. He doesn't give news conferences. There's no transparency. We got to – he doesn't – he may give a speech – but there's no Q&A. How can he better sell his message? 
Well, I think he, what they've decided is they can't get their message through to the media, so they're going to take it directly to the people, and there's going to be paid advertising. There's going to be all of that. But the confidence level, he, at some point, the president has to stand and be witness for his economy, and he's got to take the tough questions. Otherwise, it just doesn't resonate. People don't hear the kind of follow-up that they need. I agree with you, Brian. It, it is go time. It is time to sell your message. You aren't going to do that through surrogates. You have to do it yourself. Yeah, President Obama, many presidents would come into the press corps. They would surprise the press. They would take questions for an hour live, rapid fire. We have to have that from the president if he wants to sell his message. Ankur Jain, Senator Heidi Heidkamp, good discussion. Thank you. We'll get you back on. The economy not going away. Coming up, maybe a winner of discontent for some EV owners. We'll get some lessons on how to better handle it coming up. Plus, breaking developments out of the Red Sea with new strikes underway right now against Houthi targets. Lee McCroft is here. All right, welcome back. The winter and freezing temperatures sparking a slew of discontent for some EV makers and their stocks. Deutsche Bank downgrading Rivian to a hold from a buy cutting its price target by more than 30%. The analyst adding in a note that Rivian's push toward profitability, quote, may be slower than expected, in part due to slow production and prolonged factory shutdowns. Shares fell 6% today and now the same price as a year ago. Now, freezing temperatures, I mean super cold, in many parts of the country, especially Chicago and the upper Midwest, have led some EV owners to report less efficient battery range and charging. Of course, all batteries degrade some in very cold weather. Just like your phone, leave your phone outside for an hour in that weather, see what happens. But some of these drivers being frozen out are now making headlines. Shares of Tesla, the king of EVs, down nine of the past 11 trading days. But there could be some valuable lessons here for newbies and current owners alike. So let's talk about it with Tesla investor and reporter Sawyer Merritt. He's got a huge social media following, does some great work on educating folks about this new, dri- new way, really, of driving and operating. Sawyer, good to have you back on. The headlines... You know, it's one charging station. Everybody's freaking out. You know, even as somebody who's been critical of certain parts of technology, I get it. And let's be honest, we have to better educate these owners and drivers, do we not, on how to prime their battery, preheat their battery, and how to better operate in these conditions. Yeah, no, it's true. And it's in general, it's not true that EVs can't perform well in winter. The U.S. Energy Department actually says a conventional gasoline's car is gas mileage is roughly 15% lower at 20 degrees than it would be at 77. So some winter efficiency loss isn't unique to EVs in general. But I've driven a Tesla Model Y and when the ambient air temperature outside was roughly like minus 22 degrees and it was fine. 82% of new car sales actually in cold Norway last year were just all EVs. But I think consumers do need to know which ones offer, which ones are best suited rather for cold weather and how to use them. Tesla's, for example, they have a custom designed heat pump that actually draws excess heat from the powertrain to maximize supercharging speeds and driving range in cold weather. And I, I just think in, in general, EV education is important and people should precondition their Tesla's batteries before they arrive at this supercharger and to check beforehand that the supercharger is actually available. Well, yeah, and you're talking about superchargers, I think has understanding also the charging infrastructure and it's being built out. So as it is right now, though, I feel like some people probably just weren't realizing, oh, these are level two chargers. They're not good. 
They might take longer to charge in, in the bad weather. There's just a certain, and by the way, this goes, I think you would agree with this, Sawyer, this goes on the car companies, whether it's Tesla, Rivian, Ford, or GM, to better educate the buyers and potential buyers of how to operate. Because then if you don't, you're going to get a bunch of ticked off people who put their new Rivians on cars.com, right, to sell them after 5,000 miles. No, you're absolutely right. And there should be, there is an important distinction between Tesla's supercharger network, which has over 50,000, 55,000 stalls worldwide and growing, and non-Tesla supercharger networks. Tesla's supercharger network has an uptime of roughly 99.95%, I believe. But not many people know that because if you look at the, the mainstream media news and you see these headlines about, you know, EV chargers not working, these are really rare circumstances. These are not common circumstances. And we even saw some, uh, some news articles in recent days about some gas pumps, you know, freezing up in Canada. So, you know, cold weather like this is just going to affect everything really no matter what. I mean, especially when it's negative 30. It's not 20 degrees. It's negative 20, <laughs> negative 30. Whether you off the Sawyer, I actually saw these pictures. And I thought, why are these people out? Stay home. <laughs> have a roaring fire. Have some fondue, whatever. Uh, Sawyer Merritt, good stuff. Good education on this, um, on this important topic. Sawyer, thank you. Thank you. All right, coming up, the U.S. military launching a new wave of strikes against Houthi targets in Yemen, the breaking developments out of the Middle East, and where this all goes with Halima Croft. Next. All right, a news alert for you out of the Middle East. U.S. Navy ships launching a fresh wave of strikes against Houthi-controlled targets in Yemen. U.S. defense officials tell NBC News the strikes took out missiles and launchers, posing an imminent threat to ships in the Red Sea. The news coming after a big shift today. The State Department has officially re-designated the Yemen-based Houthis as a terrorist group. The White House, remember, previously revoked the terror label as one of its first foreign policy moves back in early February 2021. The U-turn is part of a larger effort to try to stabilize global trade in the Red Sea as attacks on shipping continue. But even with this move, oil did not move higher. In fact, oil's been stuck around the mid to low $70 range here for a while now, even as attacks accelerate and the risk of a wider conflict grows. This this week, National Guardsmen from New Jersey, including one of my friends, shipped off to Iraq and Syria. And two American Navy SEALs are presumed dead after being lost at sea, trying to seize Iranian weapons a couple of days ago. Let's hope they still find them. What's interesting is that since the beginning of the Israel-Hamas war, oil prices have actually fallen. More than 10%. Let's try to figure out why. Welcome back in CBC contributor, RBC Capital Markets, head of global commodity strategy, Halima Croft. Uh, Halima, uh, I always wish to see you, but under better conditions. Because this really feels like there's a fire and gasoline is being thrown on it in a variety of different places. No, we look like we're on a precipice of a wider war. And yes, the Biden administration put the Houthis on the terrorism list. There are more strikes on their targets in Yemen. But do we have any faith that this is going to lead to an end to attacks on Red Sea shipping? I mean, since the U.S. strikes on Thursday, you've had so many shipping companies say, we are not going to go through the Red Sea. You've had Shell essentially say, we're not going to go through the Red Sea. So there's no indication yet that the U.S. action is changing the, you know, the calculations of the Houthis. What's interesting, so going back to commodities, okay, oil. Yeah. The OPEC monthly report came out today. Yeah. Okay, and these are like 100-page reports they put out every month. It's called the MMOR in in parlance. And they had, I think, I can't remember, like almost 2 million barrel a day demand growth estimates for this year. Yes. 
Okay, now it's OPEC. Some yes. people have different numbers, but nobody's predicting a decline. Right. Are they? I think here is the issue. The issue is last year, U.S. supply surprised to the upside. And people look at the non-OPEC countries, the U.S., Brazil, Guyana, Canada, and say, that's like 2 million barrels coming on the market. Basically, can OPEC even manage the market? Some people are speculating that Saudi Arabia is going to throw in the towel. I don't think they will. But that is increasingly coming part of the narrative. So if you say, why do we have all this unrest in the Middle East? Why are we thinking about potentially a wider war and oil is not moving? Mm -hmm. Market participants are saying no supply has been disrupted yet. And draw me a line between Yemen and Gaza and even Lebanon and the Straits of Hormuz. I can get you there, but for a lot of market participants, they're not pricing in a Straits of Hormuz situation. It's a one waterway war. If it becomes a two waterway war, that's an entire- Persian Gulf. If it turns into Straits of Hormuz plus Red Sea, that's an entirely different story. What is that story? That story is 2019. I mean, think about what we saw in 2019. The Iranians hit tankers. They hit pipelines. They hit Abcake. If we went back to that playbook in this current environment, that is a very different situation for the oil markets. But most market participants are saying we're not there yet. So we see, we get it. Let's hope we don't. We, yes. get, it, we, get, we get a headline somewhere. CBC breaks the story. You, you break it. Who knows? Uh, mines found in Persian Gulf or Gulf of Aden, right? Iranian mines. Oil go up 10 bucks? I think absolutely. I mean, if-, if, if And they've market, done it before. If market, Throw a couple of mines in. Well, think about 2019. They Freak put, out UAE, by the they way. They hit two ships off the coast of Fujairah right after we basically ended exemption from importers of Iranian oil. They hit pipelines. They hit Abcake. If they go back to that playbook, which they have the capacity to do so, that changes the dynamics for the oil market. But market participants are saying, you call me when that happens. Is Fujairah the most important oil loading port in the world? What's important about Fujairah is that is the port that's supposed to be outside. It's outside the S-curve of the Straits of Hormuz. Mm -hmm. UAE build that as a safe place to store your oil. And when Iran went after that port, they basically sent the message, you can't de-risk us. We can internationalize the pain for you. You know, you're also a former... You, you know the geopolitics. You're not just some oil market watcher. What do the Houthis want? Well, what, the what, Houthis, what will make them stop? The Houthis have said they will stop when there is a ceasefire. You believe that? I mean, we have to wait and see. The question is, are we any closer to a ceasefire? We, I think we really have to see what happens at the end of this month. The Biden administration says that is when Israel should wind down this phase of the war. I think we'll know a lot more when that happens. The, the video we're showing right now, that's from January 11th. So these are U.S. strikes. By the way, there were more than 60 locations inside Yemen in the capital. We just have word, folks, that, that with, I don't know, a couple hours ago, maybe right now ongoing, not exactly sure, there are more strikes like this. So, Halima, there are missiles being launched from U.S. ships yes. off the coast of Yemen into Yemen, into the capital yes of Yemen, a sovereign nation, does that feel like we are closer to a ceasefire? It does, does not at all. No way. No way. It's the opposite. No, and the question is, We're Brian, bombing a foreign nation, by the way, without the, the approval of Congress. Also, just, that's, I had to throw that in. What also is interesting is, is that you have countries like Saudi Arabia, which was engaged in a war with the, the Houthis, and still they haven't had a formal Yeah, once agreement. in a while, Houthi missiles get fired into Saudi right. Arabia. And yet the Saudis are saying we need de-escalation. 
countries like Saudi Arabia are in the line of retaliatory fire. They have significant Red Sea infrastructure that is at risk if the Houthis decide to expand their target choice. And in part because Iran's got a lot more money because their oil exports have grown. You know, and that's what's also interesting, Brian. Mm -hmm. We're not having any conversation about tightening up the sanctions on Iranian oil. Who's not? We, we are all the time. Are, I post the stuff constantly. I know, but what's interesting is people focus on the $6 billion. But the real money that Iran got was the five to 700,000 additional barrels a day they've been able to export. Yep. The $6 billion is chump change, but it's easy. It's lazy headlines. Never lazy, Halima Croft. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Coming up, Amazon's land grab for live sports. The big move, making big waves streaming. Amazon is investing $115 million in bankrupt regional sports broadcaster Diamond Sports. That figure is according to sources who spoke to The Athletic. It's part of a proposed bankruptcy reorg deal. Now, if approved, customers will be able to access live baseball, hockey, and basketball games through Prime Video, which teams they'll access still unclear. Diamond's regional Bally Sports Network has the rights of 37 different teams across those leagues. So with Prime clearly expanding its footprint into live sports more and more, and Peacock's recent NFL playoff game success is the future of live sports streaming. Let's bring in Puck, founding partner, Matt Bellany, to discuss. Matt, what do you make of the Peacock thing, the Amazon investment? I mean, streaming is here, and it's only growing with sports. Yeah, it's like little baby steps we're taking where the transition from linear is going over to streaming, and it was only a matter of time before sports was part of the equation. I think the Peacock game on uh, for the NFL was a big success for Peacock. I mean, I know NFL fans complained a lot about it, but they had 23 million viewers for this. This is a service that only had 30 million subscribers total at the end of this year. So a number of people signed up just for this game. Now, the challenge for Peacock is going to be, can they keep these people? Did they come in and turn and burn and leave immediately? Or is there enough there on Peacock to keep them happy through the Olympics, through maybe next year where they notice that Sunday Night Football is also on Peacock, yeah. and then all of a sudden you've got customers there? What do you make of the Amazon investment? I mean, 100, listen, $115 million <laughs> for Amazon is like you and I dropping a penny. It is, and I think what Amazon saw here was an opportunity because Diamond is clearly a struggling company the leagues themselves are freaking out because the entire RSN model of you know putting these rights in the hands of cable networks in individual markets, that is coming to an end because the cord cutters are not justifying that price and the distributors are pushing back. So Amazon, I think, sees the opportunity here. And if they can pick off markets one by one, all of a sudden they've got a real business there, and then you look at it, and Amazon will be the go-to for your local favorite team. Yeah, and, and I think for Amazon Prime, people, so many people, I mean, half, more than half the country, I think, Matt, you probably know the numbers better than I do, already have it. It seems like just a, a, another way to make sure that nobody ever leaves. You know, it's like Apple. They've got all my phones on iCloud, so I can never switch because I don't want to lose my pictures of my dogs and whatever. They got you. Amazon's got you. Absolutely. It's the new cable, essentially, because it's a service that you come into the ecosystem and it's very hard to leave because all of a sudden you have all these other services that 
you really find valuable. And if they can also be the conduit to your favorite sports team, that is a pretty compelling value proposition. And it will allow them to slowly but surely raise the price of Prime or charge you extra. You know, they have not revealed what the pricing is going to be for these sports tiers. It may be yeah. part of your Prime subscription. It may be that you have to pay extra. It may be market by market, depending on the yeah. value that people ascribe to the team. So they're going to have some optionality here. And I think it's only good for, for Amazon um, and for the leagues, frankly, to have a big tech player interested in this stuff. Well, I got to correct you, Matt, because you said it's just like cable. I would say it's just like cable if your cable company also delivered toilet paper and dog food sometimes. I just mean that it's indispensable, <laughs> as cable once felt to all of us. And still is. And still is, Matt Bellamy. Yes. But we'll get you back on soon. Thanks very much. All right, folks, thank no you for watching Last Call for tonight. We'll see you tomorrow. Shark Tank is next. That? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.